You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz. And each week we come to you with the best in medical chat radio. We tell you what you need to know about health care, let you in on the discussions that doctors have among themselves in doctors' lounges all across the country. And we arm you with the information that you need so that you can advocate for your health care and the health care of your family. You know best about how to take care of yourself and your family, and you should be the one making those decisions. And we try to give you the information that you'll need so that you'll be able to do that the best that you can. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is a sponsor of the Doctors' Lounge, and it is a uh, uh, healthcare think tank, the only healthcare think tank that is run entirely by practicing physicians. Our positions are that of preserving the doctor patient care relationship and advocating for healthcare freedom for all Americans. So please go to our website, www docs4patientcarefoundation.org or D4, number 4, pcfoundation.org. Look at our website, look at what we're doing, and please support us uh, so that we can continue to bring you the quality radio shows and uh, other work that we do on a regular basis. Um, I think that uh, if you uh, uh, check us out, you'll you'll uh, be very glad that you did. Uh, to Usually on this show, as regular listeners uh, uh, are aware of, we um, typically focus on healthcare policy, and that's just what I think makes our show unique. And uh, occasionally, we bring uh, uh, healthcare issues that actually are um, uh, medically related into the sh- excuse me into the show, and. Uh, and try to weave them into the public policy arena. And uh, that's exactly what we're going to do today with our guest, um, who uh, uh, I am very familiar with. He uh, has been my uh, partner in my medical practice for over 20 years. And uh, uh, he, his name is Dr. Van Kasabian. He is the uh, medical director of Georgia Urology, and he runs um, the uh, cancer uh, projects and uh, quality projects for um, our practice. He's uh, nationally known in prostate cancer circles. He's um, well-published. He's um, a a, a sought-after speaker in uh, the field of prostate cancer and other urologic uh, cancers. And uh, I wanted him to uh, come in today to comment on what I think is a controversial topic uh, that uh, has really been politicized, and that is uh, prostate cancer. And uh, just this week, every major newspaper had articles about a study that was published in the New New England Journal of Medicine that... uh, um, seems to validate the position that has been taken by um, the um, government, by um, 
the United States Preventative Services Task Force in making certain recommendations about uh, how uh, prostate cancer should be uh, um, screened or not screened. So without any further ado, let me welcome into the doctor's lounge Dr. Van Kasabian. Good morning, Hal. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. Van, um, I'm going to just start with the basics because I think that although the uh, many of the people who listen to this uh, uh, show live on on the internet or um, download the podcasts off of iTunes or off of the uh, website from America's Web Radio um, are medical professionals, um, but there are quite a few people that I think listen to this show who are lay people and like to get healthcare information. Um, from this show. And so prostate cancer, um, I think uh, 101 is important to uh, talk about. So let me start out by just um, throwing up a softball. You know, prostate cancer is the second most common malignancy in men. And there's been a lot of attention paid to this disease. And when people hear the word cancer, the first thing that they do, they jump in and they say, oh, my God, we got to get this treated right away. What's different about prostate cancer from other cancers? Uh, great great question. So actually, how prostate cancer is the most common solid tumor in men in the United States. It's a second cause of cancer death in men in the United States. It's so common, but it's not as deadly as some other cancers, for example, lung or colon. But it's certainly way up there. And every year, there are almost 30,000 men that die of prostate cancer. These are not patients who had a history of prostate cancer, not patients who have been treated, not patients who have active prostate cancer and die of something else. This is almost 30,000 men that die because their prostate cancer has metastasized. So let's take that number for a second. That number of almost 30,000 is the entire incidence of melanoma in the United States. And we make a much bigger deal about melanoma and yet the incidence of melanoma is the same as the number of men that die from prostate cancer. Let's take another fact. Prostate cancer is very similar to breast cancer in women. They both happen in secondary sex organs, breast, prostate. They are both hormonally dependent, estrogen, testosterone. And yet Prostate cancer is way down on the totem pole in, in our conversation, in our uh, culture, and in the, in the government. Why, uh, why do you think that is? Well, there, there are several reasons for that. Prostate cancer tends to happen when a man is older, and there are gender differences between men and women when it, t- when it comes to your own health. I'll give you a perfect example. What's the first thing that a woman does when she gets diagnosed with breast cancer? She cries. She calls her friends and family. They go out to lunch. They discuss what to do. What do men do when they get diagnosed with prostate cancer? They run the other way. They go to work. They don't. They go to work. They don't talk about it. They, they don't want to seem like they're, they're not strong. They internalize it, and there's a fear aspect of it. So an uh, analogy, of, or not an analogy, but an, a great example of this is when the U.S. Preventive Task Force came out with the recommendation that mammograms should not be done in certain age groups. What did women do? Oh, they mobilized. It was the it's Susan G. Coleman, and they they just they just went ballistic. Correct, and they went up to Congress. Within two weeks, the task force reversed their anti-mammogram recommendation. When the same task force came up with giving PSA a D rating, which is the lowest 
rating that you can possibly give a test. What did men do? Yay, I don't have to go see the doctor. <laughs> and, and, and let me just um, uh, uh, inform everyone and, and uh, let them know that when this task force assigns a rating of less than B to any treatment or any disease that they talk about, it means that Medicare won't pay for it. That's right. And, and Medicare actually considered not paying for the PSA test, but they decided to pass on it not to uh, upset too many of the physicians, and they knew there was a controversial subject. Now, let's go to before the PSA era. Before the PSA era... Tw- uh, tell, was, tell everybody what PSA is. PSA is the blood test, prostate-specific antigen. And it is honestly one of the best tumor markers we have in all of oncology. However, it's not cancer-specific. It just tells us there's something wrong with the prostate, and it's up to us as urologists to figure out what that pathology or disease state is that's causing the elevated PSA. Cancer is one of them, prostatitis, just BPH, uh, uh, cell turnover as BPH uh, increases. There's many reasons, but leave it up to us to figure out what is the issue. So when we were training, there was no PSA. Correct. So so th- that was a game changer, wasn't it? Correct. So before the PSA era, and, and Hal and I are just divulging our ages that we were practicing and training before the PSA era, but men would present with metastatic prostate cancer that either have metastatic disease to their bone or urinary obstruction, hydronephrosis, gross hematuria, clot retention, whatever that that manifestation was. But um, 25% of men would present with metastatic disease at diagnosis before the PSA era. Since PSA came along, that number went down to 7 or 8% in the single digits. And that was really a game changer. Now, yes, there's no question, and I will be one of the uh, urologists to admit this, we over-treated men with clinically localized, perhaps indolent prostate cancer and causing side effects. And that's the major issue here is with prostate cancer therapies, it can cause urinary issues and sexual issues. Now, we didn't have, in our defense, we didn't have any biomarkers or any other tools to help us determine which clinically localized prostate cancers were indolent, which were aggressive. So fast forward now to uh, May of 2012 when the U.S. task force recommended PSA a D rating. The number of referrals from primary care or internists to urologists dropped by about 30%. And we did less biopsies. Our biopsy rate before at Georgia Urology used to be about 32, 35%. So that means for every 100 patients, we'd find 32 or 35 cancers. Now, that positive biopsy rate is 62%. And that's because? And that's because we are seeing less referrals of PSA, and the patients who present have already a higher stage cancer and higher grade. And we are seeing this. And there were, in fact, in July of this year, an article was published demonstrating this, that more men are presenting with metastatic disease. And this is what we saw during our training. This is, this is you know, when, when, uh, when I was a pup and, and uh, taking care of these, uh, I don't take care of adults anymore, as, as our listeners know, I do pediatric urology, but when I trained as a, an adult urologist in training, we saw patients coming into our office every, or into the clinic every single week 
who had um, the the ravages of of prostate cancer having spread outside the prostate. Correct. And we are going to see an increase of that. I think it was in the single digits, maybe 7 or 8%. I think now it's probably in the low teens. That I, that's what I suspect. And, number, and that number is going to go higher as less and less men get PSA testing. Now, how, how do we, as urologists, treat patients who need to be treated and not treat patients who don't need to be treated? Well, we now have, which we didn't have several years ago, certain biomarkers to give us genetic information about a pre- patient's prostate cancer. If there are Gleason 3 plus 3 equals 6, maybe one or two cores, we would say, you know what, let's watch this for now. Active surveillance may be a good option for you. And Gleason scale, um, Gleason um, grading is is um, what the pathologist uses when you do a biopsy and they look at it, and that's one of the, the factors that they use to determine how aggressive a cancer is. Correct. Thank you. So um, the, the other issue is we also uh, have seen a decrease in 2016 in the number of men presenting with prostate cancer. So it used to be in the PSA area over 200,000, maybe 220. Now it's projected that in 2016 we're going to see 180,000 men being diagnosed with prostate cancer. But those 180,000 will have more uh, aggressive disease and higher stage disease. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we, we are coming up to a hard break, when we come back, you know, I'd like to uh, uh, get into, you know, some more specifics about the prostate cancer before we start talking about some of the policy decisions that have affected how these patients are now going to be um, presenting and seen when we get back into the doctor's lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And you're back in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. My guest today is Dr. Van Kasabian, who's the medical director for 
Georgia Urology and the head of uh, the oncology program at Georgia Urology. Georgia Urology, just so that you know, is the largest uh, uh, urology practice in the southeast, and um, and we, you know, that that kind of varies, you know, depending on mergers and acquisitions, and goes day by day. But but we are we are certainly among the largest and and uh, and involved in uh, many of the uh, cutting edge uh, prostate cancer um, studies and uh, initiatives that are going on uh, in medicine today before we go on I just wanted to share a story um, we are talking about prostate cancer and early detection and and uh, and screening and PSA testing and uh, I had prostate cancer myself, and I, um, uh, as a urologist, and having the resources that I have, and the knowledge that I have, really, uh, um, it was it was uh, different than most people who get diagnosed with prostate cancer. Um, uh, I Van was was uh, taking care of me uh, early on, and and one of our other partners uh, took did the surgery for this because um, I had um, a robotic uh, prostatectomy. But my my point is that that knowledge about the uh, about the disease and about what you have is far more important than burying your head in the sand and not knowing about it. And I think that it's this is this is what our show is all about. It's about empowering people to take control of their health care and not let other people who have absolutely no connection with them decide for them whether or not they should learn about their their problems, learn about their body, make the decisions about how to manage the problems that they have, or should people take control of it? And, and we always say that that um, conservatism is not a political word. Conservatism means that people should have the ability to make the decisions about health care for themselves and for their families and not some government agency or third party that's conservatism and and i think that this is one of those cases where where um knowing about what you have knowing about a problem that's in your body and with the good counsel of your urologist and i say that word i underline urologist um you make the best decision about how to uh, treat the problem based on what advice you get and 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 your um, sense of of uh, your level of comfort with this problem. A great point, Hal. I didn't want to break any HIPAA violations, so I'm glad you brought up your your personal uh, story. But yes, and I'll give you another personal story. I did a radical prostatectomy on a patient uh, about maybe almost 15 years ago, and he's cured. In fact, I saw him in the office last week. Why did I see him after his cure? Because he's brought his brother in who just got diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer who never had a PSA in his life. So this, I don't know if there's any other story. Of course, others will say it's anecdotal. Of course it's anecdotal, but it just tells you how one brother who, who was in the PSA era was found to have early-stage prostate cancer, had surgery, was cured, and the other now is metastatic disease. You know, this is one of the things that really annoys me, and it is that 
that the experts um, they poo-poo anecdotal stories, or they 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 denigrate the individual experiences, the experiences of your practice, of your career, or of our practice as a whole, because it's not population, and. Really, we're not taking care of populations. We're taking care of patients. That's right. That's right. And l- let's let's touch on this article. D- from David wants to jump in. Our, our producer, please. David Moxley, want, is is chomping at the bit. So please join uh, us. I, I think you all have, have have started a conversation that that really, I would assume, and which is bad, but I would assume that ninety nine to one hundred percent of your patients are referrals. As opposed, nobody just walks in and says, I think I got prostate cancer. Correct. So in talking with your uh, primary care physician, he comes back and says, well, you have a, a higher than normal PSA. Uh, he's done the digital and says, you know, I think we need to go further. So at that point, uh, how does the progression start and and come to to your doorstep? It depends on the uh, conversation that the patient has with their primary care physician or or internist. Um, There are uh, 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 guidelines that the family practice associations have and internal medicine associations have, but not everybody necessarily follows those guidelines. But what is true is that we have seen a decrease in the number of referrals for elevated PSA. There are still a lot of physicians, a lot of family practice physicians who are still sending elevated PSA and letting us figure out why the PSA may be elevated. And you know what? I don't biopsy everybody who has an elevated PSA. I may decide to to just watch the PSA. And then uh, if they do have... Uh, a reason for me to biopsy, and I find an, a small area of cancer that's that's not that aggressive, I may decide to watch these patients. So I am a firm believer in active surveillance, but it has to be in the right uh, 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 patient. If you take this study from the New England Journal of Medicine that was done in the United Kingdom, which, by the way, the United Kingdom has probably the lowest cancer-specific survivals in all of Western uh, 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 countries, um, you take this study, they randomized patients to either surgery, radiation, or observation. And the patient didn't get to choose which arm they went on. This study would never been able to pass an IRB and get off the ground in the United States. Okay, so let me all decipher all of this for just a second. So, so IRB is, is a group of people who, are, who have... Um, various backgrounds, including ethicists, who decide whether or not a study is going to be able to be done in the United States. And before you can do a scientific study, you have to get the approval of the Internal Review Board. That's what IRB stands for. And so um, what uh, Dr. Kasabian was saying is that in Great Britain, where they have socialized medicine, and we've talked about this on the show previously, in order to uh, be able to give health care to everybody, they have to ration the limited resources that they have. So the people uh, who are in the National Health Service don't get choices about what they are going to be uh, getting treated with. Their doctor tells them. And... Uh, 
it's it, it just a, you know as an aside when people in my specialty in pediatric urology before there was um, in a lot of training programs in this country they went to England to get their training and the the people who were trainees would go to the senior um, uh, uh, doctor, the professor, and he would ask them, what do you want to do next week? And then they would tell them the operation. He would give them a stack of cards and say, well, start calling these people because they all have this problem. And they may have been on the waiting list for six months or nine months or longer. And that's, that's why studies that come from around the world in different health systems need to be taken with a grain of salt. Well, they need to be taken into the context that they're coming from. Yes. So uh, l- let's take this particular study. So patients were randomly assigned to either surgery, radiation, or uh, observation. The patients who were in the observation arm, half of those patients eventually needed to have treatment either with surgery or radiation. In some cases, it was already too late for them to be curative. That's one point. The other point is that there were more patients who died of prostate cancer in the observation arm than in the radiation arm or the surgery arm. But it wasn't statistically significant. The other very important point is that it takes more than 10 years for us to see a survival advantage when we treat a patient's prostate cancer who we think is clinically localized, whether it's surgery or radiation or whatever other modality. So it's not surprising that in 10 years, there was no statistical difference between surgery, radiation, and observation. That's something that gets lost in the media and actually in the paper. So when you read the title, you say, oh, there's no difference in 10 years. Well, most patients who are going to have treatment for prostate cancer have a more than 10-year life expectancy. We know that, and we typically are not aggressive in patients who we feel have a less than 10-year life expectancy. So we already know a lot of this, but the media has taken it, oh, I don't have to be treated if, if the, if the uh, risks of uh, dying are the same within the first 10 years. And that's not the message that needs to get out. So the what, what we're seeing is that um, urologists who used to be the um, really the, the the specialty that managed this disease has um, incrementally been been um, uh, I, I would say marginalized in in uh, in many in many areas. Um, the urologist sometimes. Um, I'm sure you're seeing has not even been involved in the care of some of these patients until you're seeing them later on. Is is that right? And can you comment on that? Sure. That has happened uh, more and more. Uh, and it's unfortunate. And, and as you said, incrementally it has happened. It's been uh, by here, by there. And the, if you look at the U.S. Preventive Task Force recommendation for the PSA, how many urologists were on the panel, do you think? None. None. How many medical oncologists were on the panel? None. How many pediatricians were on the panel? There was one who was the head of the panel. Correct. I believe there were about five pediatricians on the committee. One of them was the head. Now, I can read all I want about pediatrics, but I've, I've never treated a pediatric patient other than medical school. What the hell do I know about pediatrics? I mean, I can read all I want. I can read all the journals, but I've never actually been in the trenches. 
And this is what's infuriating. And there's no accountability for the U.S. Preventive Task Force. You can't go and say, hey, what are you guys doing? Here's the data. Why aren't you looking at this data? And what they did is they handpicked the studies that they wanted to support their PSA D recommendation. Right. And uh, one of my professors always famously said, never let the data interfere with your conclusions. And this is one of those cases. Um, Tell me what, you know, when when we were in medical school, we learned that men, if they lived long enough, would uh, all get prostate cancer. Is that still true? That is still true. So cancer is a disease of aging. And as men age, there'll be more and more men who get prostate cancer. Now, a lot of those will be indolent and will not cause mortality. But it is so common that even though a small percentage of patients who get prostate cancer will die from it, it's still a big number. Well, you know, this is this is really, I think, a very important uh, discussion that we're having today for uh, half the population in this country, and uh, we've got a lot more in store for you, so stay with us on the Doctor's Lounge. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. And we're back in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz. Um, I would like to uh, just give a plug to... Uh, uh, our upcoming conference that we are putting on in Dallas uh, on direct primary care. That's going to be October 14th and 15th. Uh, it's There's still some open slots. It's very well uh, subscribed to, and, and there's going to be over 200 people there learning about direct primary care. 
It's a CME course. There's almost 12 credits of CME for free for the doctors who need it. So please go to our website and click on the uh, Learn More About the Meeting button uh, about uh, the uh, direct primary care meeting. Also, um, check out townhall.com. There is uh, the second of my uh, three-part installment on the insurance industry. It's um, uh, pretty hard-hitting, and I do not pull any punches when I uh, uh, explain to everyone how the insurance company is scamming America. The insurance industry is scamming America. Um, so so please uh, go to townhall.com, put in my name, Hal Schurz, in the author um, box, and it'll come up with uh, that article and also all the other ones, including the first of the uh, first installment of the three-part series. My guest today is um, my good friend and, um, and I have to say, um, business partner. You've got to be careful nowadays when you say partner. <laughs> um, Dr. Van Kasabian, who is uh, one of the country's leading experts in prostate cancer. And we've really uh, covered a lot of ground so far about um, you know the, this disease, and and one of the things that uh, I um, you know uh, always uh, you know get get uh, a kick out of is you know we we do so much in our practice for um, this uh, trying to educate the public in this disease. We do. Um, uh, uh, health fairs and uh, all kinds of other um, efforts uh, in the community. This is some. This is important, isn't it, Van? Absolutely. Tell tell us why. Well, it's important because the media, in one, and the government on the other, is is trivializing prostate cancer mortality, and. It's also trying to, as you said earlier, bit by bit erode away the patient-doctor relationship. Now, the government views all doctors as, in my opinion, views all of us as very greedy uh, and we over-treat. Uh, also interchangeable. It's not. It doesn't matter whether they go to a urologist or they go to see, you know, a a um, a, a physician extender. Absolutely, absolutely. And it, so, just to give you an example of this, in, in Canada, just recently in, in the province of Quebec, where they have socialized and, medicine, and you can talk about Canada because you're a Canadian by birth. Correct. And my mother is still living in in Canada. So the uh, Quebec health minister just uh, is trying to pass a law to take away all ancillary services from physicians. So all physicians are, of course, upset. They're trying to cover their costs of their of their offices, and the government is trying to take this away. And every five to ten years, the government there comes up with something new to com- continue to erode the ability of the physician to take care of his patients. This is this, I, I didn't even expect to get into this today, but this is really a great a great uh, you know uh, 
uh, segue or, or a uh, digression about um, the Canadian health care system versus our health care system. Can you kind of give some insight into, you know, what, what it's like being a uh, person with prostate cancer in Canada versus in the U.S.? Sure. Well, just a patient in general. I mean, if you look at the Canadian system, uh, the number of physicians per capita is a lot less than the United States. Um, if you look at the urology, let's talk about urology. If you look at the urologist, the number of surgeries that Canadian urologists do versus American urologists is about two to three times more. So they're a lot busier up there, but they spend five minutes, maybe ten at most with the patients. Uh, a a 60-patient load for a morning clinic for urologists is sort of the norm. 60 patients in in half a day. How much time do you think they can spend? They can't. And it's really all about rationing health care and access to health care. The physicians are very well trained. They're exposed to a lot of surgeries, a lot of pathology, and they're up to date. They come to all of our meetings. It's North American. It's not just American. Correct. So so the the, um, access point is really all about limiting access from the patient to the physician. Uh, I'll give you a, a perfect example of my mother who is, God bless her, is 93 years old. God bless her is right. She, when she was 88 years old on Mother's Day in, the, in mid-May, she had an MI. She had a heart attack. She went to a well-known hospital there, was placed in the coronary ICU for a couple days, then transferred to the floor, and went home in about five days with new medications. She was 88. This was the middle of May. Guess when her appointment with her cardiologist was? Two months. September. Oh, God. That would would be four months. So you give an 88-year-old woman a discharge from a hospital who just had an MI with new medications, and you don't expect to see her for four months? What do you think would happen here if you told your patient, well, after had a heart attack, I'll see you in four months? Lawsuit. Lawsuit. Well, you know, th- this is, this is um, you know, a conversation that we've had over and over again about how, how uh, different health care is in a, uh, a country that has socialized um, single-payer medicine than, than uh, a country like this where we have choices. And um, this is why we fight so hard to try to preserve what we have and not let it get down the road like Canada where I, I heard a statistic, and you might be able to um, support this, that 70% of Canadians at one point or another gets health care in the United States, I don't know that number. I, I can't. I can't confirm or, or deny that. But I know that people who have the ability to have choice do come to the United States didn't for the minister, faster treatment. Didn't the minister, I think the minister of of health in Quebec had a heart issue and went to Texas. Uh, that's Florida, possible. Florida, to to um, the Heart Institute in in, uh, um, in Miami. Well, I can tell you, I didn't know about, about that one, but when I was uh, in Canada, um, uh, Mr. Monsieur Bourassa, who was the premier of Quebec, had melanoma, and he went to Memorial Sloan Kettering for treatment. 
You know, I, I think that uh, you know that says it all. When people when people uh, uh, w- um, act with their feet and their pocketbook, you can really get an idea. So let's talk about globally from my global perspective. Yes. So the United States is the only country that has. A, a sort of capitalistic healthcare system, right? M- the entire world has a majority or at least some part of a socialized healthcare system. Let's talk about drug development by drug companies. It takes, on average, $1.5 billion for a drug to go from the scientist's brain to the market. It's that high because it includes all the medications that never get through the pipeline and are dropped because of not being efficacious or side effects. So let's take that number, $1.5 billion. The only country in the world that the, that the f- big pharma companies can recoup their money on research and development is here in the United States. You can say that's good, or you can also say that's bad because it's bad in a way that we fund the world's R&D for new drug development. We as citizens of the United States, we pay for all these drugs. If you take that away, where is Big Pharma going to go to recoup their money in R&D? There's nowhere else. So there's going to be a decrease in research. There's going to be a decrease in new developments of drugs. So we'll just go home and die. That's really what our options are. Well, there are other, I think, uh, barriers as well that, that this, is a, this is a very uh, controversial topic and one that we have also talked about on this show in the past. I think that Part of the reason why drugs are so expensive is tort reform, uh, or, or the, the medical malpractice environment, rather. Um, mass torts, you can't turn on a TV without somebody uh, putting on a commercial did you take this drug? Do you have this or this or this or this? It's crazy. Or, or do you know somebody who has that? You might be entitled to money. That's part of the reason why right. drugs are so expensive. Correct, correct. So, and this is true. Every night you turn on the TV, late night, you'll see these commercials. And guess what? A blood thinner like Prodaxa. Did you take Prodaxa? Did you have bleeding? Well, of course. Prodaxa is a blood thinner. Of course you, you expect to have bleeding. Hello? And yet the, 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 the lawyers put a twist on this and, and say it's a bad drug. And the other reason why it is so expensive, the drugs are, is and not just drugs but medical treatments, is the FDA. The FDA is out of control. Again, we've talked about this issue and we've had guests on who have addressed that. But you know, the FDA needs to be reformed. The FDA is really an impediment. And you can speak of this probably as well as anyone, Van, because you've um, had to go out of the country to treat some of your patients with uh, treatment that could not get FDA approval. Correct. So the FDA, in my opinion, is an ultra-conservative uh, institution that its main goal, and the reason they say this, is to protect patients. The FDA will not look at any um, trial done outside the United States, which is interesting. So all scientists outside the U.S. are bad. All studies are bad. We need to redo the studies here in the United States. On the same hand, an article comes out in the New England Journal of Medicine done in the United Kingdom is praised for 
it's no treatment is as good as treatment for localized prostate cancer. Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to ch- change around what you've just said. This the FDA is not conservative. The FDA is obstructionist, and what they have done is they, for various various reasons, whether it is crony capitalism, there are special interests at play. They have put up barriers to prevent um, new ideas to come to market ostensibly to protect the public, but there are many, many people who believe that there are ulterior motives at play. And and just to jump on the bandwagon about what the what what they look at the FDA, they look at not only these studies that are done outside the country when it fits their narrative, but they also aggregate studies together. There's a technique called meta-analysis, and they take the studies that by themselves can't even stand up, and they throw them together. You know, it's like putting, you know, like uh, chuck and and sirloin and, and filet mignon into a into a, uh, a meat grinder, and at the end you get hamburger, and you don't know which one was the good meat and which one was the bad meat. <laughs> That's right. So we're gonna wrap up. I'm gonna we're gonna wrap up with the uh, this this uh, specific study and a couple of things about prostate cancer, and you're gonna uh, find out uh, all you need to know if you haven't learned it already when we get back in the doctor's lounge. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Thanks for staying with us in the Doctor's Lounge. Um, I hope that you are um, finding what we're talking about today with my guest, Dr. Van Kasabian, um, interesting. I hope that it's stimulating and that many of you will uh, um, go get a, uh, a screening test for prostate cancer. So, Van... Um, if you had to, if you have a man who uh, is at a cocktail party with you and talking to you about prostate cancer, 
and uh, really hasn't done anything, what would you uh, uh, say is the most important thing that they should be doing? I would say go have a physical done when you're about 50 years old. Uh, for men who are African-American or who have a family history of prostate cancer, then start at about age 40. Now, these guidelines vary from country to country, um, and I would recommend you do this on an annual basis. Now, if there was, I've been asked if there was one test that you could do once in your lifetime, what would that be? I would say get a PSA test between the ages of 45 and 50. And the reason that is is because let's say you're 48 years old, and your PSA is 2.5, that's a red flag for me. This man needs to be watched very carefully because he's likely to develop prostate cancer versus a man who is 70 and has a PSA of 5.0, so double, but he's 70, he's probably less likely to get clinically significant prostate cancer than the 48-year-old with a PSA of 2.5. That is fascinating. So um, in your career, what has been the biggest advance in uh, prostate cancer, both detection and treatment? So that's easy, Hal. So for decades, for about 60 years, once a patient failed hormone therapy, androgen deprivation therapy, which, by the way, the Nobel Prize was given in the, in the 1940s to uh, um, two gentlemen who discovered that prostate cancer was androgen sensitive. But for 60 years, we had nothing to offer our patients who failed hormones. Since 2010, so in the last six years, we've had about five or six treatments that all improve survival in men who fail androgen deprivation therapy. It is similar to breast cancer. Once a woman has breast cancer and fails estrogens, we we now have many treatment options that we didn't have before. But prostate cancer is really about 20 years behind research uh, uh, when you compare it to breast cancer patients. The numbers are the same. The demographics are the same, and yet we as men are behind the curve when it comes to prostate cancer. Are these treatments chemotherapy treatments? No, no. The chemotherapy um, was in 2000 and in 2004. All these are really very interesting novel agents. One is immunotherapy. Uh, The first was 2010. You take a patient's immune system. You boost it to fight prostate cancer. You give back their uh, white blood cells. It's very cool. Then there's two oral drugs. Uh, All you do is take take four pills a day, and it lowers your testosterone even more or blocks the function of testosterone. The the other one is a radioisotope, and there's another one that helps you for bone health. That's That's an antibody. These are all very cool. And the other cool thing is we have a lot more coming down the pipeline and the next two, three, four, five years that are actually very, very promising. Are any of these um, DNA, genetic kind of uh, markers that are that are tied to uh, changing the uh, genome or, or uh, trying to reduce risk of prostate cancer in susceptible individuals? Uh, not yet. We have biomarkers to help us tell us what the genetic makeup of a cancer is. In other words, is it indolent? Do we need to, uh, or is it aggressive? Do we need to treat early? Uh, But we've also realized that the BRCA uh, 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 genetic test is also prevalent in certain types of prostate cancer, similar to breast. So if, if you're a man and you have a family history of breast cancer, your mother or aunt, uh, uh, that is also a risk factor for prostate cancer. So should, should men who have a first-degree relative, a mother or a sister um, with breast cancer, 
get screened for the BRCA gene? I would say probably, but we don't. I don't have enough evidence to fully support that. But we are moving in that direction. We're under, understanding more about the genetic uh, changes in men with prostate cancer. Tell tell us about you've you've talked about um, advanced prostate cancer. What about the localized prostate cancer is what's been some of the um, most important advances again in your career in in treating that that aspect of the disease. So there's a the FDA finally approved a treatment for localized prostate cancer back in the fall of 2015, and that's HIFU H I F U high intensity focused ultrasound that is really a minimally invasive treatment to ablate the prostate to what radiation does, but without the radiation, and it sexual function and urinary function. I've been doing HIFU in Canada for, for over 10 years, and so I bring my U.S. patients up there, treat them, and bring them back. But since the FDA approved in the fall, I do it right here in Atlanta now. So what's so bad about radiation? Well, radiation um, is actually there's two issues with radiation. Radiation can cause burning of surrounding tissue. It does kill the cancer by burning it by causing DNA breaks, but it can also affect the bladder and the nerves responsible for the erections and the sphincter muscle. The other issue that sort of gets unnoticed is that radiation can also cause cancer. This is why we avoid Chernobyl. This is why we avoid Three Mile Island because we can get cancer. And so we see secondary malignancies in patients who've had radiation. And the one that I see the most is really bad bladder cancer 10, 15, 20 years after a patient's been radiated for localized prostate cancer. And what's bad about surgery? Surgery has the potential side effects of urinary issues and sexual function. So if the pro- I always tell my, my uh, 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 cardiac surgery friends that if the prostate was in the middle of the chest, it would be an easy operation. They always laugh at me. Well, we've got nerves to deal with that are responsible for the erections, and the prostate contributes 50% of your uh, seminal fluid. So it causes morbidity to the patient that are undesirable in a man who's sexually active, especially a young one. And I, I, I get asked by a lot of people to share my experience and my thoughts as a urologist, as a partner in a big group that has a lot of resources, and I always tell them, and I'm biased, I have to admit that, because I'm a surgeon, and, and surgeons are definitely biased in that direction, but but I like to tell my pay, or the, the people that, that ask me for advice that um, it's better to take care of a problem when it's easy to take care of it rather than when it's harder to take care of it because the side effects are much, much worse if you have to go back in for some other reason like a treatment failure. Is that correct? That's generally true. But as a physician, our job is to primum non nocera, right? Do first, no harm. First, do no harm. And also give the best advice to the individual patient. So my advice to a 52-year-old is going to be different than a 72-year-old with exactly the same problem. Okay. So at what age would you not treat? It's the physiological age. So if, if uh, I, I, I want to uh, credit one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Bill Cooner, who's now passed, but uh, Dr. Not, a, not Co- a prostate cancer, is it? No, he actually died as, uh, of, of a different malignancy, but he was a very renowned private practice urologist who sort of developed transrectal ultrasound for urologists. 
And um, I, well, somebody once asked him, so would you treat a gentleman who is 82 with localized prostate cancer? And this was brilliant Bill Cooner. His response was, well, yes, if his father was waiting for him in the waiting room, I would. <laughs> I'd love that. <laughs> so we're, we're coming to an end, and this has been a, a really great show, very fascinating. Um, Van, if there are people out there who um, have questions about prostate cancer or want information, um, can I, I, I'd like you to tell them how they can get it, and is it possible for them to contact you? Sure, I can be easily contacted at Georgia Urology. Um, but the uh, advice and, and, and the and the and the way to contact you is at email by vkasabian at gaurology.com. dot com spelled v k a s s a b as in boy i a n as in Nancy at g a like Georgia urology.com, one word. Um, so the best advice is, men, don't bury your head in the sand. Uh, yes, you're you're a man, but you're also as vulnerable as, as any other human being, and please take care of your health, and that includes your prostate. So um, that's a that's, uh, good, uh, almost a last thought, I think. Um, I guess... Uh, you know, I would like to uh, you know thank you for being on the show today, Van. Um, we uh, we we don't get the opportunity to talk about medical problems as often as I would like to, and you know, and I thought that that uh, the fact that there was an article in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, all you know talking about this issue, that you can't you can't really talk about it too much and every opportunity that we get to to uh, alert men and their wives who are the primary decision makers for most men um, we, we need to take that opportunity because it will save lives absolutely and thank you for having me and uh, we uh, I think we are right on time so I'd, I'd like to uh, once again thank you for being here in the doctor's lounge and uh, we're looking forward to uh, being back with you in two weeks. Uh, um, my guest will, I think, be uh, Hadley Heath, um, from uh, uh, who is the uh, new uh, um, Tony Blakely Fellow at uh, the uh, Steamboat Institute. So uh, please join us then. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.